Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and when you write into this show, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. And there is no incorrect spelling they're of all, Rockmeister McCool. They are all correct. Mm-hmm. This, this is the rule I've made up. Uh, you can call me Whitney as well. That's, That's fine. fine. But, but Rockmeister name. McCool is, is accepted. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is the podcast here at Critically Acclaimed where we try to give you uh, an opportunity to control the conversation. You can uh, talk about stuff that we've talked about on our various podcasts. You can ask us for recommendations, talk to us about uh, film and entertainment history, ask us stuff about like, ourselves, if that's your bag. Um, basically, the floor is yours. We try to be as open as we possibly can. And uh, if you want to write in, the email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And um, yeah. We don't like to screw around at the beginning of these. We want to just give you your time. Whitney, tell us about our first letter. Well, I can read it to you. I don't just have to tell you about it. Well, it's your call. We got a letter. It's very interesting. And it's from somebody named Andrew. Hi, Andrew. And I'll tell you about the next letter. It's really interesting. (laughs) Here's a letter from Andrew. It says, uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Uh, (laughs) This is an interesting spelling. R-O-Q-M-A-I-J-S-T-E-R. Rockmeister. I like it. McCool, K-E-W-L. Nice. That's how we pronounced it in the 90s. Cool. Cool. We spelled it C-Y-O-L-L, like in notes to each other in class. Spelling it that way was dudical. No, it was not dudical. Was anything dudical? It it was, um... I feel like when they changed Chuck E. Cheese so that he had a skateboard, that was dudical. Well, not radical. Because, let's be honest, he's not really overthrowing a government. But he is dudical. (laughs) How do you know? I think we would have found out by now. Chuck E. E. Cheese is is facing hard times right now. That's true. They have no business model that doesn't involve, like, going to their business. And and, and they were plenty filthy to begin with, I'll tell you. But, you know, why do you think they're falling apart? They don't deliver. They have no leadership right now. Because Charles Entertainment Cheese is out leading the resistance. Read the letter. Uh, I was Whitney. listening to today's episode, and something <laughs> something mentioned in your discussion of Eurovision oh. uh, sparked a bit of trivia that I might shed some light on the running joke of how closely Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams' characters were in the movie. Okay. Uh, let me preface this by stating I am not Icelandic, though I do find much about the country fascinating, and have heard some stories that might have inspired the character beats in the movie. Uh, for for re- frame of reference, when we reviewed uh, the new movie Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, a lot of the jokes are about Iceland, and the characters are from Iceland. And it's one of the things in the movie that Whitney and I just don't know if it's funny or not because we're not that familiar with the culture because we've never been to Iceland. And, and so we're well, inviting we're... anybody who has better knowledge than we do to tell us what the movie did mm-hmm. right, did wrong, did on the nose, whatever. Yeah, we, we were a little baffled as to its accuracy. If this was yeah. like making making fun of something in actual Icelandic yeah. culture or for something Will Ferrell If you're from Iceland, out. would you think it was funny? Yeah. That kind of thing. Anyway, uh, Andrew says... Uh, There have been wide reports in publications such as USA Today, a paper well known for its strict journalistic standards, uh, that there is a higher than average chance of Icelanders being closely related. Hmm. To be fair, this has also been reported in the Wall Street Journal website as well as in Wired and in the Smithsonian Magazine. It is uh, partially due to reports of an app 
that was created to ensure that the person you're dating isn't some uncomfortably close cousin. A mm. uh, quick Google search can quickly put to rest these notions if you look for actual Icelandic sources, but it's a myth that persists in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. While it's true that there is some lack of genetic diversity in the country due to its isolation and relatively small population, yeah. the reports of it being a persistent problem appear to be exaggerated. Yeah, people have been solving that problem mm. since the dawn of time. I'm pretty sure, yeah, yeah. pretty sure Iceland would have figured it out. <laughs> Uh, there's a similar there's similar lore regarding Icelandic belief in elves, something which is particularly partially supported by people using elves as a legal block in, to road construction. These were reports of a legal battle to ensure that the elves weren't disturbed about a decade ago during one such infrastructure project. It's unclear whether people actually believe in them or it's just a matter of folklore being passed down and misunderstood by outsiders. It doesn't seem like that's much of a stretch for a character beat. I always enjoy your insightful discussions on film, even when I disagree vehemently with one or both of you. It allows me to expand my own understanding of the process, and I have on occasion revisited my opinion of a movie based on something said on the show. Well, oh, that's that. that's wonderful. That's yeah. that's very flattering. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of we get a lot of people very nicely saying like, we like your opinions, even when we vehemently disagree <laughs> with you, which. We always get that caveat <laughs> that Look, we're always is always we're always disagreeing with one or both of you, which is you can, fine. It's just kind uh, of funny. You can say it's me. Uh, that's fine. Um, we and and as we always say, we're not here to you know reflect opinions. And the yeah, and the, the, the the mark of a good critic isn't that you always agree with their opinion. If you do, maybe you know you can take their certain reviews to heart, but. Yeah. The point is finding a critic who can explain themselves well enough that you always understand where they come from, even if you disagree with them. The, even if you disagree with them 100% of the time, you can yeah. still really like that uh, critic. Honestly, like the closest I've ever come to anyone saying that like they agree with me 100% of the time mm. are the people who hate my reviews so much they say they disagree with me 100% of the time. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that's great. So you know if I dislike something, you're going to love it. Yeah, I'm like I've, a perfect barometer. <laughs> this is I, awesome for you. I have family members who have said that to my face. Yeah. It's like, you have such awful taste in film. When you, when you say you love something, I know to stay away. I'm like, well, great. You know my taste. That's what my parents said after I recommended they watch Fifth Element. Oh. They hated it. <laughs> anyway, there's more to the letter. There's, there's, there is more to this letter. Uh, most notably, I was all set to give Little Women a miss until Bibb's passionate, passionate appraisal of the film. I'm glad I went to see it. Little Women's really great. So good. Great, 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 so great good film. Saw it, yeah. Uh, there are many movies that I know I need to make time for, and I'll often decide based on my knowledge of where our tastes overlap and your individual recommendations. Uh, as a final note, I agree with you that Abba Gold and the various Queen and Billy Joel compilations of greatest hits are classics. Yes! But I think that there are two others that you missed in your listing. Okay. We, uh, Again, context. We're, uh, we're kids of the 90s, which means we grew up in a rather uh, music snob era, which is to say, if you uh, were a fan of a band... You had to collect all of their records. Generally. If you skipped past all of their records and went straight for the greatest hits, you were considered something of a poseur. Well, it's not even that. It's like if someone asked what your favorite like album was and you said an album that was a greatest hits album, mm. it was just like, well, that's not really an album. That's a compilation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not because really. They, they don't count. Yeah, you're not really. But you don't listen to all the stuff that isn't on the radio. But there were, we, there were exceptions to that rule. Yes, there One are. of those was Abba Gold. Yes. Uh, the three volumes of Queen's greatest hits. And you said uh, Tom Billy Hedder. Joel's greatest hits. Billy Joel's one greatest hits. Okay. Three, not so much. It's good, but one and two, unassailable. <laughs> uh, but uh, here are some further suggestions. Bottle of white. Yeah. Bottle there, of red. There are two. Perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Anyway. Still Billy Joel to me. Uh, the Eagles had a couple of pretty good great greatest hits albums. Oh, that's true. Well, I've had a long night. <laughs> 
complete the line of the, from the Big Lebowski yourself. Yeah, um, I believe Greatest Hits 1 is still a best-selling album of all time, although it might have been surpassed by Thriller. And every hippie I knew had a copy of Bob Marley's Legends. That's true. Bob that's Marley's true. Legend counts. That That's fair. Yeah, yeah that's 100% fair, mm-hmm. and that should have been on there. You're right. Um, uh, it was, it was uh, uh, just something that passed us by. Yeah. Um, no, I just didn't think of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, I, I, oh, and um, yeah. maybe History, the Michael Jackson record? Because that was a new record and a greatest hits record. So That one's kinda, kind of in this middle ground yeah. kind of place. I don't know if it counts. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, well, thank you for writing in, Andrew. That yeah. was a great letter. Uh, here's a letter from Bone Steel. Yeah. Hello, Bone Steel. Oh. Uh, I, I will, uh, what, whatever you sign your letter off as, that's how I'm going to address you. Your your real name might be in the subject line. I'm not going to read that on the air. I, I, we've actually had some letters from Bone Steel before, and I think I only just recently discovered, is I, Bone Steel, I ask you, is that a reference to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the live action series? Because I think it might be, mean, but I don't you know. Mean the next mutation, yes. that one was there a character there named Bone Steel. There was a Bone villain Steel? named Bone Steel, and I only just learned that this was a thing. Okay. Wasn't the, what was the name of the wrestler in the first Spider-Man picture? Bone uh, Saw. Bone Saw. Bone Saw McGraw, played by uh, uh, the Randy great Macho Randy, Man. Yeah. Randy, the late great Randy Macho Man Savage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this one's from Bone Steel. He says, "Hello, I wanted to comment on two recent movies that reviewed Becky hmm. and Seventy Five Hundred. Uh, regarding Becky, I had a real issue about how lazy and shoehorned the justifications are for Becky's actions. Uh, beyond the whole dead mom trope, there are two specific dialogue bits that are meant to set everything up. Early on in that movie, Becky's father comments on how she needs to stop taking things that are not hers, after which she comes in, uh, after which she shoplifts from a gas station. This later justifies why Becky has the MacGuffin. Becky was uh, a home invasion film about a teenage girl who fights off and murders a bunch of Nazis who are looking for a treasure that she's stolen. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's Neo-Nazis. This doesn't look like during World War II. No, yeah. So, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Kevin James is a, no- a neo-Nazi who's escaped from prison. And uh, Kevin James is really good in that movie. Uh, hmm. I-, I found it to be pretty exciting. Uh, it uh, was contrived, but I didn't Well, l- l- let's, let's wait till right, the anyway. is over. Uh, the second line of dialogue comes later in the movie when Kayla, Becky's soon-to-be stepmom, states that Becky is the most vindictive person she knows. To me, this is meant to justify the entirety of Becky's actions, but it not supported by the rest of the movie. Mm. This, to me, would have been the easiest piece to set up in the beginning of the movie instead of dropping in her laps like a dead fish more than halfway through the movie. I really want to like Becky because Kevin James is really good and it's a hell of a lot of fun, but these clunky justifications, specifically the latter, leave a bad taste in my mouth. I feel the movie is more irresponsible than fun. Uh, I can can see that. Uh, I would say that when you're dealing with really pulpy... Um, kind of material, you, I think you get a little leeway with how bluntly you set things up because yeah. we're basically just here to see a For high schooler mayhem, kill yeah. neo-Nazis and you're just trying to come up with any justification you can get. Sometimes you have good justifications, sometimes you have bad ones. There's some movies that have really weak justifications, but the setup is strong and so they deal with it anyway. We just reviewed mm. on episode zero, The Dirty Dozen. Mm-hmm. There's literally no good reason for them to put together The Dirty Dozen. It's a terrible it's, it's idea. Just the plot. It's a yeah. waste of time and resources. There's the mission that they're on isn't like better because prisoners are doing it like any group could have done that mission and maybe done it better Mm. and so they have to explain constantly throughout the film why we know this is a bad idea but someone higher up than us thinks it's good (laughs) sometimes you just have don't have a great idea for a movie and you have to step around it and sometimes it's more obvious than others I get being distracted by it. it Becky yeah. isn't amazing but ultimately I like the cast and I think it's got some thrills and so I dig it uh, it, it's, okay, it's okay to take certain things at face value, yeah. especially when you're dealing with a genre picture that is contingent on mayhem. Yeah. Uh, there are some films that have 
unbelievably bad explanations for their setup, but the mayhem is enough yeah. that you enjoy yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, like what, what's a, what's a good film that just has nothing but mayhem from beginning to end. Something like mayhem. The raid or mayhem. There's a movie called mayhem. Mm-hmm. And the whole point is um, it's an office building and there's a virus that uh, breaks out in the office building. The office building is quarantined and the virus makes everyone act on every negative impulse they can find. So mm-hmm. people start, uh, you know, beating each other to death and like breaking all the windows and like setting things on fire because the office space is just this horrible mm-hmm. like microcosm of human misery and suffering and any excuse to act out, they'll take it. But the opening like couple of minutes where they set up in the near future, there's a virus that does this. It's like we just trying to get to the mayhem as fast yeah. as we possibly can. Doesn't really fucking matter mm-hmm. as long as a bunch of office people start killing each other and letting loose all of their aggressions and there's a reason why they can't leave. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It doesn't the movie's great. Yeah. The movie is really, really, really fun. Um it stars um I think Steven Yen from um Walking Dead and Samara Weaving before people started oh, to yeah. know her name. And um yeah, it's really well constructed. It's a hoot. Uh but yeah, the setup is preposterous. <laughs> Don't need, don't need much. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, regarding seventy five hundred, mm. uh, that's the Joseph Gordon Levitt thriller. Yeah, uh, it was brought up that uh, that it was a standard exploitation thriller setup, which I completely agree with. What I feel elevated seventy five hundred for me was the level of humanity expressed by Joseph Gordon Levitt's character. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, some spoilers ahead. Uh, there's something that happens around the midpoint in the movie that would completely justify Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character going full oorah violence on the terrorists mm-hmm. that took over the plane, but there is a distinct moment that the character chooses not to pursue a path of violence. It's when he puts down a wine bottle knife. Uh, at the end of the movie, once, spoiler redacted, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character reaction is not one of retribution or condemnation, but uh, to provide medical assistance to, spoiler redacted, uh, these are human... Re- Human touches were, frankly, shocking and refreshing to me, as I am not used to seeing them in mainstream releases. I understand that 7500 is not necessarily a mainstream release, but you get my point. Uh, I would also like to point out that while the jihadist uh, terrorist plot is tired, I did appreciate that there was no use of slurs or mocking of the beliefs. There was no ugly judgment. That situation was just allowed to play out. Again, this was shocking and refreshing. They have some PTSD from Taken. Uh, yeah. Um, that's yeah, a, um, that's a, have you seen that movie yet? Seventy five hundred. I didn't see that. I one. hope that was you see it before the end yeah. of the year because Joseph Gordon Levitt is, I think, it's some of the best work he's ever done, and mm. he's a very good actor. Um, but yeah, if, if anyone missed it, um, hopefully the spoilers are vague enough that you feel like you haven't uh, seen it. But uh, it's about a terrorist hijacking of a passenger plane, and Joseph Gordon Levitt plays a pilot mm. who is trapped in a cockpit, and he knows the one thing he can't do is open the door, mm. even though the hijackers are doing everything they can to try to get him to do that. So yeah. it's kind of like Panic Room at 20,000 feet. But this is a really excellent point, and I don't think I really talked about it enough, mm. is, yeah, even though it's ostensibly a Hitchcockian thriller, and I think it's the kind of thing Hitchcock would have done, mm. um, it is very humane. And it, is, it isn't about how anything is cool. It's about how the loss of any human life is tragic. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, and one of the reasons why I, I think that the uh, hijacker characters mm. are portrayed in many respects stereotypically, and I think that is to the film's detriment, um, one of the reasons why I'm able to forgive the film for that is because ultimately they are treated as more complicated human beings than you would normally find in any thriller. Yeah. So uh, they may be doing cliched things, but they are more interesting mm. characters and they're treated with some degree of respect, at least as characters. Mm. 
So, um, yeah, it's a really good movie. I hope more people see that. You, you pointed out that it's uh, Hitchcock and Hitchcock didn't have mayhem in his movies. Mm. He had a lot of thrills. He had a lot of suspense. But the main characters never took up weapons and just started wailing on bad guys. Mm. The, the, not really, no. no that's There's what some the bad fist guys fights did. and things. Well, well like, like, like some, some like, like fisticuffs, but you never yeah. saw the, the hero, you know, once he got the drop on the villain, just sort of like cut his head off with a sword or something. No, there's a really amazing uh, fight to the death in Torn Curtain. You ever see Torn oh, Curtain yeah, with that, Paul Newman? Yeah. There's, there's this, it's a really underappreciated Hitchcock film. It's not amazing. Mm. I think it's too long for its own good. The, the, the climax between Paul Newman and the professor at so the blackboard is, is the best scene in the movie. Scene. But there's a lot of really good scenes in it. There's a sequence where they're on a bus and they have to like escape, but they're on a bus and the bus can't go faster than a bus would go. And it's the most intense. It's one of the most intense scenes Hitchcock's ever directed. But there's also a scene towards the beginning where Paul Newman has to like fight a Russian agent to the death. And like the whole premise of the scene is it's actually really hard to kill someone Mm. who doesn't want to be killed. Like it's like, if you don't have like a gun, like you're just trying to kill somebody and it's actually like very violent, you know, standards for movie violence were starting to loosen in the sixties. Um, but it's just really human in how like murderous it is. Like it's a very interesting sequence. So that's one where it actually does feel kind of like the hero is being violent, but it doesn't play like any other movie would do that. But, uh, but to address the issue, uh, bone steel that you seem to have between these two pictures that one is really sort of inhumane and morally responsible because we're meant to, take glee in the violence without the backup of any kind of emotional heft, mm-hmm. whereas the other one is uh, a little bit more character-driven and a little less mayhem-driven, uh, I will say you are right on both counts. Yeah. Uh, Becky is indeed morally irresponsible, and you know what? That's not always a bad thing. Uh, yeah, in terms a- of... W- I mean, being morally responsible is. Well, it's, but a, it's in, a matter it's, of execution, really. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of these violent action movies and violent horror movies that we consume by the fistful are appealing because they do uh, appeal to something kind of dark and subversive within us. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons these things exist. And to have a little bit of uh, moral uh, <laughs> moral looseness Mm-hmm. With your characters, it allows you to uh, indulge in violent fantasies without well, necessarily, you know, indulging in violent fantasies. Context matters, mm-hmm. I think. When you yeah. talk, if you talk about like, oh, Becky is kind of flimsily constructed, I think if it had been super plausible and realistic, it could have arguably been more responsible for supposed to be entertained mm-hmm. by the violence. Yeah. The the broader it is presented, the less seriously we have to take the violence, mm-hmm. and as a result, it is possible to enjoy movies like, for example, Mayhem. Yeah. Which are full of mayhem. And uh, I, a lot of people don't really seem to mind when action movies are, you know, casually violent. PG-13 violent. Yeah, J- James Bond violent. James Shoot Bond a guy violence, and he goes, yeah. ah, and falls over. Yeah, or, or, you know, a car blows up and you don't see somebody's face flying off. You don't see their family crying at their funeral. Yeah. They're, they're just a bad guy that needs to be blown up. And mm. uh, same with, you know, superhero movies. What are superheroes but people live by a code of violence? Like, what, what's the question we ask about superheroes? Who would win in a fight? Why are they fighting? Yeah. Who, who'd, who would... Who would be wise enough not to fight? Yeah, that's the real question. <laughs> it's one of the things that like the like it's one of the things that kind of bug me, like when you mm. found out like, oh, Spider-Man's been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What's he been doing? Actual hero stuff, you know, retrieving stolen purses and mm. like helping his neighborhood, that kind of but thing. It's and, shown in like montages and stuff. Yeah, and it's then not like the plot of anything. And the exciting thing is when he gets to punch Captain America. And yeah. I'm like, look, I'm not 
immune to the charm of that. <laughs> no, it's like, Spider-Man fight Captain America it's too. Exciting. It's cool. That, but that, like the tarmac fight is an awesome action but sequence. But we are missing this kind of like actual positivity in our heroism. And I maintain that one of the and there have been a several really good Spider-Man movies, right? There's Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse, and Spider-Man Sp- 2. I, I love Spider-Man 2. And there's a lot of ones that people really, really like that do less for me, like the the Tom Holland movies. People really like those. I enjoy them okay. I think he's it's, better than the film. It's just because he's cute. He, That's he's, really... He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's like bop magazine cover hot. You it, know? He, those are some movies that I feel are made infinitely better just by the cast. Mm. He's got a good ensemble cast, and the villains are usually bringing their A game in that more than a lot of other MCU movies. So, well, the actors, anyway. yeah. But I maintain that even though the movie itself is mostly badly constructed, the scene in Amazing Spider-Man Two where he just yeah. helps yeah. a kid like fix not, his science project. He, well, he, there, some kids are bullying a kid, and he, they mess with his science project. And Spider-Man steps up; he doesn't hurt the bullies. He just says, "Hey, guys!" And they go, "Oh no, Spider-Man!" And we know we're the bad guys, and they run away. And then Spider-Man offers to walk the kid home, mm. and they talk about a science project. Mm. That's a great superhero scene. That's a wonderful it's, superhero. Scene. The whole movie shouldn't be like that. It would probably be <laughs> too chill to make its money back. But it's nice to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so but, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I agree with everything you said about I, the way violence is wielded, and I yeah. think there's a, a smart way to wield violence irresponsibly, if that makes any I, sense. I think we're due for a paradigm shift. I think uh, I, I think people are really responding to genre films that have humane qualities to them, mm. and it might be time to maybe focus on making movies a bit more... Morally centered. Morally centered, um, but also sort of emotionally centered as well where it's not always about escapism and release it's about like hey let's wouldn't we feel something right now what do you feel yeah yeah it's great and and not just the scene where like somebody leans against the wall oh my god it's too much and then they just keep on fighting not not like that like like, let's let's actually make the movie about it let's actually talk a little bit uh, we we just got a letter during the show so i got Um, and this does not have a name so i'm just gonna say it's from name redacted once again uh our rule if you email us and we get that email in the middle of the show we have to read it yeah (laughs) so it says good day good day bibs and rockmeister mccule there's three r's uh i'm becoming increasingly interested in the influence on tiktok on both future audiences and future filmmakers. The videos on TikTok are no longer than 15 seconds, which means many can be consumed in one sitting easily. How do you think this will affect future cinema goers who grew up consuming TikTok or whatever the evolution of it is? Mm. Also, considering these same people often learn how to use basic editing tools and learn pacing and extremely economic storytelling due to the restrictions of the medium, mm-hmm. how do you think this will affect future filmmakers to the world who got their first taste of filmmaking process from TikTok? Yeah. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Wishing the best regards. Um, that's a really good good question actually i'm really i think we would have made a point to read that anyway because Mm -hmm. um yeah as technology adjusts uh filmmaking adjusts with it you know a lot of uh filmmaking movements were only possible because all of a sudden filmmaking techniques were available to us i mean back with the dawn of sound cinema cameras were gigantic Mm -hmm. And unwieldy and loud. They had to have these giant balloons around them so they could record sound. And then as we started getting uh, more independent-minded movie revolutions, we started... Cameras began to shrink a bit and actually uh, become more portable. People were able to... Yeah, sometimes it was a run-and-gun style, but people were able to run and gun it. People were able to get Mm. their footage and get out. And that same thing happened when the digital revolution came along and... 
I think every generation tends to worry that the generation after it is going to be somehow artistically illiterate mm -hmm. and lose whatever came from the past. And I think that's something that a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at, but I think it's something we need to keep saying just so that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, so I think as long as these TikTok filmmakers are excited about art and the medium and they're willing to make sure that they're actually like part of a tradition of art and they're not like inventing all this, a lot of this stuff for the first time. Mm. Um, this could be a really, really exciting momentum and it could change how we treat short film cinema. It could change the yeah, way that cinema, uh, cinematic language is used to convey stories. This is well, exciting stuff. Uh, some of the, the lessons, if you go to film school, some of the first lessons you're going to learn are uh, how to think filmically. That is how to think visually. Yeah. Uh, so you hear rules like uh, show, don't tell. Yeah. That's not a hard and fast rule of cinema. That's something you tell first year film students to get them to think a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, visually if, as well. Yeah. yeah. If, if you are already making 15 second movies trying to convey a story in that time or pace it in such a way, and I've seen a lot of pretty good, well-edited TikTok videos. Same. People having conversations with themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a really funny uh, video of two kids playing ping pong, but each time it would edit back to the other person, their paddle had changed into something strange. So they're you know, like, turkey leg, TV, holding yeah. a cat. And then the last thing is that the ping pong ball bounces into frame, but it's an egg and it breaks on the table. That's fun. It's a cute little co comedic bit. That, that would, perfectly timed. That would get you an A in almost any film school. Yeah. And, that's, that's, and like, that's just two kids messing around. Yeah. It's good editing uh, exercise. I think... What TikTok is revealing is that we're already, because we've been living with the medium so long, we're already just sort of naturally film literate. Yeah. We understand the way a lot of this operates. We're not going to the cinema. We're consuming films constantly on Every our phones, on, on the go. And uh, I think what might happen, just to pause it and spitball, we might see much more efficient movies. Movies might become shorter again. Yeah, it'd be cool. Uh, you know, we, there's been all these studies about how over the course of film history, generally speaking, films has just, have just become longer and longer and longer. Yeah. And the average film length is now, I think, over two hours, whereas back in the while. 30s, it was like like 99 minutes or something. Oh, I something. think it was shorter yeah. than that. I think it was like 89 for a while there. But like, it's, yeah. yeah like, and yeah, you're right. We're losing a lot of efficiency. What I'm really excited about is like, we've had a lot of other like short film revolutions before the music video generation, for yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, a lot of commercial filmmakers are doing such interesting things that they became major filmmakers as well. Uh, Michael Bay got to mm. start doing commercials and so on. as well. Yeah, and, and music videos. Mm. Um, but there's a difference, I think, between what a lot of people are doing on TikTok and what was being done in music videos and commercials because music videos and commercials are trying to sell you something. Yeah. They were trying to sell you a band, or they were trying to sell you a product, or they were trying to sell you an idea of cool. And yeah, a lot of people are putting out TikToks to sort of promote themselves, but you well, need to have something to say. And so you're either playing with the medium and having fun with it, or you're trying to convey something. Yeah. And that's really, really exciting. It's way more exciting mm -hmm. than, hey, I have this idea I want to convey, as opposed to, oh, I really want you to buy more eggs. Well, here's what I've noticed. This and this is something that, um, like, and I'm an old man, so this is just sort of my my view of the thing. But because yeah. I, 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 I remember don't have a lot of experience, I've, I've never I, made a TikTok. I remember when uh, when you know phrases like culture jamming and reality hacking were big phrases in like 1990s subcultures. Yeah, and how uh, part of that was you should start to think like if you're a hacker for the first time back in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, you need to think up like a special handle. You need to come up with a brand for yourself. What? How do you want to appear when you go online? 
thanks to social media, that's all anybody's trained to do. You're mm-hmm. sort of uh, now expected to think of yourself as a brand, especially when you go on something like Instagram and people now have to sell a certain lifestyle and have to ensure that their lives look a certain way on social media so they can essentially be a brand. Mm-hmm. And once they are a brand, other brands will have to, will want to like hang out with them and they can perhaps get some money out of it, but not necessarily. Sometimes it's just about social clout. My This is my brand. This is who I am. I have 16,000 followers and here's how I'm selling myself. And I feel like social media has encouraged a lot of people to split themselves. There's the person they are in real life and there's the person they are on social media. And sometimes they get muddled. They get muddled and sometimes there's no difference. Uh, People have become so devoted to the brand that that's kind of what they become. Yeah, it Uh, happens. But that happens with any form of celebrity, really. Yeah, well, but... People have been losing themselves in celebrity since celebrity... There's a lot of people who, like, make fashion choices or makeup choices specifically because it will Instagram well. Or they do certain things because they know they can take pictures. There's an entire museum phenomenon. You can go to malls. There's also that I Love Scary Movies experience. Mm. That's all based on Instagram. That's all based on posing for a picture with a cool thing. Mm. It's not going there to edify yourself Mm. or to look at something cool. It's to pose with it and prove that you did it. Uh, but even and I so, feel, well, let me, let me finish that because that, that, that seems to be the millennial, uh, entrance, entrance to this phenomenon, this mm. self branding as a lifestyle. And I'm not getting, now I don't spend a lot of time on TikTok, but I'm not getting that from the TikTok that I've seen. Mm. I get from TikTok people who are doing this because it's fun. Yeah. They're doing it because they like to, because they want to, and exactly. not because they're trying to, sell themselves because it's not about, you know, hit like and subscribe and follow my channel. There's not all these calls to action, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, which we do at the end of every one of our podcasts because well, yeah. we are also a brand. Uh, yeah. But it, it seems to be done for the sheer joy of the thing. Uh, right. And that's what I appreciate about TikTok, mm-hmm. that it we're sort of pulling away from this idea of personal branding and getting something that rather than being manufactured authenticity, is actual authenticity. You know, we were literally having a conversation before we started this podcast about how weird it is that Mm. we record our conversations because we probably wouldn't be phrasing ourselves the way we do because we are aware that people are listening and we want to make sure that people have context to what we're saying or that we occasionally define terminology or make a point to express things that you and I know intimately well, but we want to make sure other people know about them too. But beyond that, this is how we talk anyway. Yeah. Like we'll shoot the shit for hours and hours and yeah, we just, we just happen to record it. And hmm. it is kind of weird that it's become a brand that we had to name it. You yeah. Know? It is weird, but like, wait, why, why are you, why are you listening to us? Because we're us. Yeah. Like we, we're the selling point here. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But like, it, it, it's baffling to me, honestly, but uh, we're very grateful. Mm. But yeah, it's it's a weird thing, but yeah, it's something that people <laughs> art is constantly evolving and the way that we and the technology, sorry, that we use mm. to make art is constantly changing, especially mm. in technical mediums like film. Uh, you know, people have been making charcoal drawings since we've had charcoal, but film is a mechanical medium, mm. it's a digital Te- medium. Techno- technology based. Yeah, and so as that evolves, so too do the do the people do the art that the people make, but mm. At the center of all of it is the desire to express oneself. And people will do that however they can. Mm. And if TikTok is the medium right now for, and who knows, maybe it'll last. Who knows? Like, a lot of things that I thought were fads 
never stopped being a thing. Pokemon is still around and popular. That was supposed <laughs> to be a fad. It's amazing. It was a, it was a trend for a it's second. It's an institution now. We yeah. were too quick to call it a fad. I'm not going to call TikTok a fad. Well, Facebook.com Facebook was supposed to be a fad. It could go still, away yeah. and be replaced by something else. Like before TikTok, there was Vine, which was mm. somewhat similar. And yeah, so it's fine. But I actually, I really see this like whole wave of creativity coming from it. And I wouldn't be shocked to discover mm. that the next like French New Wave or Dogma ninety five or whatever the big cinematic movement It'll be telephone based yeah it, yeah emerges directly from something like TikTok where mm. people are doing it for the joy of doing it as opposed to for some mercenary reason and then yeah. I'm sure corporations will find a way to monetize it but well, yeah. they, that's what they do but <laughs> keep making the art just mm. do it that's great well and, and it's especially important to pay attention to stuff like TikTok and things that are phone and tech based and things that the that younger a younger generation is using mm. because. We we have already pointed out, thanks to the pandemic, we've learned now that cinemas are going to wither. Yeah. They're all, they've already taken a hit that they're not going to recover from. Some of them, yeah. And because the medium through which people get films and television are now identical, there's v- so little difference between... The, the difference now is no longer venue. Mm-hmm. It's no longer audience. It's merely aesthetic. It's aesthetic, or um, it could be duration. Like, serialization perhaps, is so much different. Yeah, but, but that's an aesthetic choice. But and, functionally, yeah. it's very similar, yeah. So uh, what? how are you going to set yourself apart? What's going to be different than movie? if movies and TV are the same? What's the, the side art? Mm-hmm. What, how, what, what's the new thing that's going to sort of separate itself and float off and, and grow into something new? And, you and I have been wondering yeah. for a while, where's the counterculture? Because mm-hmm. our, counter, our, our culture got kind of like expanded a bit. There wasn't like considered a mainstream culture for a while. It's just there's a lot of different offshoots and a lot mm-hmm. of different genres and subgenres. And now we realize, I'm starting to realize that the the new, like, counterculture, it's actually going to be, like, yeah, it's it's going to be about, like, the way that we consume, not necessarily the actual content or genre. It's going to be, we're going to consume stuff because we want to and not because someone told us to because they're trying to sell us something. And, yes, they're trying to sell you TikTok, but, eh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We could continue to go on about, like, subculture and the nature thereof. Um, I'm I'm very heartened by this new generation. They Damn. they seem they seem to have their heads on straight. Generally speaking, I'm so excited to see what the uh, next generation is actually going to be. Or the new generation, yeah. sorry, not the next one because they haven't There's, been born yet. But like, I'm so excited to see what the the young people right now are doing right now because man, they're bringing back Beavis and Butthead, and now is the time. You don't bring, <laughs> you don't bring back Beavis and Butthead in 2011 when like millennials are in their 20s. Millennials don't care about Beavis and Butthead. They're not cynical enough. Gen Z is. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I read a, a great, I'm going to keep this in my heart forever, but I read a great comment from like a, a, somebody in high school who is ragging on millennials. Yeah. And, th- and they said, millennials are all like, I'm a Hufflepuff. Oh, for Christ's sake, do a line of Coke and grow up. <laughs> <laughs> It's a 14-year-old. I love oh that. God. I love that. I want a t-shirt that says, do a line of coke and grow up. Some people say they were born too late. I think I was uh, born too early. If I had been born <laughs> in the year 2000, I think I would have emerged a better person. But anyway, let's move on. Okay. Uh, this is a letter from uh, Name Redacted. Uh, okay. This says, uh, hello, witty bibs and bitty wits. I like that one. That's uh, a good one. I got little, little bitty wits, not big ones. Uh, I have questions for you. I hope you have answers. Okay. Uh, Bibbs has mentioned that he likes to play crossword puzzles, and I would like to know where. Do you play them on your phone or in books or in a newspaper? I've been playing them for a while now, but most apps are either too easy or too difficult. Mm. So far, the best I've, uh, I've liked is the New York Times mini puzzles. Of course, New York Times, Will Shorts is a god. Mm. Um, 
but they're really small. I've been wanting to get a full version, but I'm still unsure if I want to play this, pay the $7 per month. I feel, uh, I feel bad for asking this one. Oh, wait. And that's, so that's question one. Okay. Um, you can order books. You Th- can. That's the best way to go about it. Uh, next time you travel, well, mm-hmm. you can't go to airports right now, but I guess you could just mail order a book right now. Well, you can also but, go to a, you can go to a lot of uh, pharmacies. They'll have like, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but actually those, those things are, of, uh, uh, Will Shorts has put out a few books. Yeah. Whitney Van for a bit. I'm, okay. gonna, I'm just going to grab the one I have a subscription to. Okay. Yeah. I, I can't do crossword puzzles on an app. I can't do it on a screen. I don't know what it is. Just something about the interactivity. I need an actual like physical pencil in my hand. I need to be able to erase it or scratch it out or, or spitball across things off. And, uh, yeah, you can. Will Shorts, as you probably know, he's the New York Times cro- uh, puzzle editor. He's the Crossword Times uh, Crossword puzzle editor for the New York Times. He has films about him. He's a celebrity in the world, and he's published several volumes of crossword puzzles that he has written and people he respects has, yeah. have written. And those are of a pretty good difficulty level. Yeah, they're nice and large. They're really easy to handle. Uh, it's, it's yeah. your best way to get them now. Well, uh, there was the, a time when you could get them like every day in the newspaper. Yeah. But uh, not, not a lot of people subscribe to newspapers. Yeah. And that was actually one of the things that got cut when newspapers started to wither was stuff yeah. like the crossword puzzles. Uh, so one of the things that I found with people like crossword puzzles, like me and my mom, I learned uh, crossword mm-hmm. puzzles from my mom. And yeah, anyone can do a crossword puzzle, but there are actual like tricks and clues and contextual things and like. Uh, uh, clues that have been grandfathered in for so long, they now reference pop culture things that nobody's talked about in a hundred years. Like Asta? <laughs> yeah, like, once they find a, a good collection of popular letters, mm. like, they'll just stick with it forever, and almost any crossword you run into will have uh, Nick and Nora Charles's dog as a clue, and the, the answer is Asta from the Thin Man movies, and people don't watch those very much anymore. Mm. So you get this interesting sort of cornucopia of popular culture in one good crossword puzzle where they're referencing everything from ancient history to music from the early 1900s to what do the last Jedi. Um, so uh, the, the trick I have found and my mother uh, has found as well is finding crossword puzzles that are consistently at your preferred level of difficulty. Some people like to have the most difficult crossword puzzle in the world. Some people like to have some real easy that they can like flit about in a 15 minute, mm. you know, break. Um, I like one that give that takes time but isn't impossible. So mm. uh, what I've found is the best, uh, uh, most consistent collection of crosswords is uh, a magazine called Collectors Crosswords. They come out every three to four weeks. They're currently on volume 336. Maybe 37, actually. I think this month. I think this is last month. But um, they are Sunday-sized crossword puzzles of varying difficulty. Uh, and uh, they're pretty good. They come from, uh, let's see, Kappa Publication, K-A-P-P-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want to try some crossword puzzles that are, you know, long, but... Again, you you might have th- there might be a learning curve if you're new to crossword puzzles, or you might have to occasionally look something up. Mm. Um, but they're really really good for me. I can usually finish most of one, if not all of it, and I can do so in like a half hour, forty minutes before I go to bed. Mm. And um, so yeah, that's uh, 
Thank you for asking. <laughs> I never get to talk about crosswords on a podcast. I do love crosswords. They're fun. Yeah, and uh, and they're proven to keep you mentally acute. Yeah. People who do crossword puzzles tend to just be sharper in general. Um, well, I, don't, I don't know if that's necessarily mm-hmm. true, but they do, you know, keep the mind occupied, and you're actually, like, focusing on mm-hmm. things like contextual clues and spelling and all kinds of fun stuff. So, yeah, so uh, right, uh, they're good. Uh, another question. Have either of you guys seen any film by the Argentine director Lucretia Martel? Uh, Zama. I'm not sure. Lucre- Lucretia Martel did Zama, which was really acclaimed a couple of years ago. Um, okay. I couldn't name any others off the top of my I'm gonna, head. I'm going to look her up um, just to make sure I'm not forgetting something. I don't think I heard you guys talk about her films, and I would love to. If you guys uh, haven't, I'll say that she has a very unique style. It reminds me of Claire Denis, and a lot of people compare her to Terrence Malick's early work. Wow. She's made headlines by voting for Joker to win Golden Lion at Venice, but please don't let that discourage you from seeing her work. Oh, there's no accounting for taste. Yeah, um, um, I don't actually don't think I've seen any of her films. Um, I'll have to check that out. She made a lot of shorts. She did, uh, let's see, Zama, The Headless Woman, The Holy Girl, La Cienega. Um, oh, I think, yeah. I, I think I did see The Holy Girl. No, I, I didn't. I, I didn't see it. But, but I, did, I'm familiar yeah. with it. So, uh, okay. Right. This is just one of those ones where we'll mm. just have to, you know, eat a little crow mm. and say, mm. not that familiar, but uh, thank you for the recommendation. Anyway, uh, William would appreciate her films, and I uh, would love to hear his thoughts. On the other hand, I think Whitney would love her films. <laughs> Why, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll just say her first film, La Cienega, which translates to The Swamp, is full of dread as we watch a has-been upper-class family rotting away in their laziness and bourgeois moral decadence. Oh, bless. Um... <laughs> Read a little about recent Argentine history, and that'll help, too. Maybe I'm wrong, but that sounds to me like something Whitney would enjoy. I've been discovering that I also like such films, so I appreciate when Whitney talks about them and recommends them. And Jesus Christ, would you look at the time? Better luck. <laughs> Better get going. <laughs> Thanks so much for all your work. A happy listener, ML. Uh, thank you for writing in. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we're always looking for recommendations. And even if we don't have the time, hopefully one of our listeners will take you up on that if they're looking for something, mm. um, well, interesting. Yeah, a lot of cinema just isn't. I mean, think about a lot of the things that we're reviewing that are coming out on streaming that are just kind fine, of, just kind of forgettable things they're we don't like, need. They're fine, like like even something like uh, that's perfectly watchable, like Eurovision Song Contest mm. Fireside. I'm not going to remember it in 20 years. It was just, it was just, I didn't dislike watching it. Like there's a big difference here. And sometimes those, uh, uh, stories that come from a different, uh, country or culture or a different filmmaker who's telling you aren't familiar with, they're the ones that can sort of shake you out of your complacency and go, Hey, look at cinema. I'm like, okay, sorry. (laughs) That should be the name of our new podcast. Hey, look at cinema. Hey, look at cinema. Look, actually. Yeah. Here's a letter from Chris Chris Wong. Uh, folks, (laughs) Folks, just folks. Okay. Uh, Whitney spoke about the Guitar Hero Van Halen effect for Star Trek <laughs> with all of these new series. I disagree. Disagree, you may. Um, there's been a total of 39 full-length episodes of Star Trek since 2017. The first season of Discovery, 15 episodes. Second season of Discovery, 14 episodes. And Picard, 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. And potentially another 23 this year. Discovery season 3, 13. And Lower Decks, a half-hour show, 10 episodes. Uh, it's been stated that CBS Viacom wants new Star Trek episodes all year round. While this seems ambitious, there's actually been 52 episodes per year during the entire seven-year Deep Space Nine run, which ran concurrent with uh, Next Generation, then Voyager. Yep. Uh, people should be able to handle the same episode count spread over four or five series. There's a lot of Star Treks, and I think there's a tendency for fans to forget the more mediocre episodes. Discovery and Picard are pretty much in line with the quality of the previous treks. There's a few mm. good or great episodes, a lot of mediocre episodes, and one or two bad episodes per season. 
season. I love the Trek talk, especially your non-Trek podcasts, Chris Wong. Uh, thank you for that. And yeah, our Trek podcast, all our yesterdays, uh, we are constantly running into the bad episodes, and it is very useful to remember that sometimes we take the good and forget about the bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I'm not really following a, a lot of Trek right now. Not mm. uh, not by design. I just don't have the time, and I know we'll get to it eventually on that podcast. Mm. So uh, I really can't comment on your thought that they're like getting a little oversaturated. Uh, but it is a real risk. It does happen. Yeah. I mean, there are oh. franchises that have killed themselves by oversaturation. Yeah. And uh, there's no reason to assume that the big ones like James Bond or Star Trek or Star Wars, the ones that have been around for decades, mm. will always be here. Yeah, well, that that seems to be the, the mode of most studios. Uh, there's a, an immediate... I'm borrowing a phrase from uh, Scott Mendelson or Ipster Forbes, an immediate pivot to ensure that uh, certain properties stay permanently within the popular consciousness. Yeah. And it, and it has to be constant. So yeah. if something is a big hit, okay, the first question is, it, the first question isn't, wow, what are we going to do with our riches? I'm going to buy a new car. I'm going to pay off my student loans, whatever it is, uh, because, because studio heads still have student loans. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's always, what are we going to do to not just ensure that we get another movie out of this, but, you know, how are we going to just sort of filter this throughout every facet of life? Yeah. How are we going to how put this on money TV? Off, yeah. How are we going to Franchise. turn this into an, in, an interview show? That's how what franchising going, yeah. is. It means yeah. you're, you're making money off it as, as vastly as you can. It's, but it's, it's, much more, it's much more quickly and much more aggressive than it's ever been, is my point. That's generally true, but we see a lot of the attempts to pull this off peter out really really quickly look at the dark universe look at all the ya adaptations that didn't spawn huge yeah. franchises um remember the seeker the dark is rising i do uh but yeah when once something has cultural clout the way star trek star wars james bond lord of the rings does um they understand that there is a built-in audience if only out of curiosity mm. You know, even if the popularity of a thing wanes, th because it's well known, people will be more inclined to give it a shot. Mm. And as a result, that has value to a corporation whose job is to sell you things. Yeah. So they will do everything they can to keep something hip and fresh. And since that's where the money is, there will always be interesting storytellers who are at least interested in giving it a try. And as a result, sometimes these things get a breath of fresh air and a bit of rejuvenation and actually are artistically interesting again for a while. And then they go through a fallow period. Mm. But even so, again, I think we need to remember that art goes on a very long scale. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's on a long scale, but in actuality, like movie franchises mm. come and go. Like they'll be around for decades and then they're gone and nobody talks about how they were like. 30 movies based on the comic strip Blondie. Right. Like, right, so, right. I think it was like 20, 25, but still, that's a lot of movies. And yeah, they were B productions. They weren't like major films, but they were popular enough that they made like two dozen feature length motion pictures based on the comic strip Blondie. You know the one with the guy Dagwood who makes mm -hmm. the big sandwiches? That was a hit franchise. <laughs> and you can't even get them all on DVD anymore. They put uh. out like a few, but nobody gave a shit, so they didn't put out the rest of them. I've been looking for these things forever, just out of sheer curiosity. And we, we recently saw a film from the 1930s, 1937, called Dead End. Yeah. Uh, which is a really fantastic film with Humphrey Bogart and Sylvia Sidney. And, uh, yeah, it's th this very uh, raw uh, 
hard-boiled story of kids growing up in this little kind of neighborhood by the river in New York City. Yeah. And just sort of how rough their life is, and they're all, they all have a propensity toward crime and mischief. Mm-hmm. And uh, this spawned a long, long-running series of movies. It spawned imitators. It lasted well into the 50s. This was a 20-year franchise, The Dead End Kids. Mm-hmm. The Bowery Boys, you know, the, all of these movies were really, really important at the time, and they were huge hits. You know, where's your retrospective of that? Yeah, where's nobody's the reboot, talking Where's about the it. reboot of the Dead End Kids? Uh, nobody cares anymore. Things just sort of go away eventually. Uh, Star there Trek, were 28 Blondie movies. 28, made, made between 1938 mm. and 19. 19- 50! That's more than one a year! That's how well these things did! They just churned those things out, yeah. didn't they? And again, they're the, B-movies. They were made on the cheap. But that's they still wouldn't keep making them if people weren't seeing them. It was the MCU of its day. Uh, well, it's like nuts, but yeah. Now, to to address Star Trek, uh, yes, in terms of like actual uh, like time spent on screen, the actual physical volume, we are at a lower ebb than we were during the, the Deep Space Nine era. It was the seven straight years where there were two Star Trek shows on simultaneously. At any given time. At, at any given time. And sometimes yeah. they would run right at one right after the other. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people complained because uh, the way broadcasting worked, sometimes they were airing opposite each other on two different stations. Oh, that must have sucked. So, yeah. so if Before DVR? Can if, you imagine? If you were a Trekkie at the time, you had to get really good at programming VCRs. to. Or tape, you had to get two TVs. Yeah, yeah tape, tape one yeah. and watch the other. Uh, Oof. But at the time, it felt like it didn't feel the same way it does now. They're (laughs) selling it now as if everything is a gigantic event. So it feels exhausting. These shows are a lot more elaborate. They're a lot more eventful. Mm -hmm. So even though there's actually less in terms of hours, there's more in terms of Star Trek. Yeah, there's a lot of disposable weekly fun episodes of the old Star Treks yeah, and yeah. people aren't super interested in those kinds of things anymore. I just had this... You, you could miss two or three episodes of those old Star Treks and be okay. Yeah. The uh, the ones they're selling now are gigantic miniseries events. Uh, Star Trek Picard is essentially... If you cut out all of the credits, somebody measured. It's like a seven and a half hour feature film. Yeah. And they're trying to sell these things as these gigantic feature films. And when they're sold as a unit, and again, I haven't seen Picard, but on principle, if they're sold as a unit, as a lot of TV shows are, if like the average quality of an episode is like the same as an old TV show, Mm. it doesn't feel as satisfying because it's kind of just telling one story. And that just means like half of it sucks Mm. as opposed to, yeah, there's some standalone episodes that I can forget about and I can focus on the good ones. I just had this memory and I haven't thought about consuming media like this in so long Mm. from back when, you know, we didn't have DVR. We only had live television and yeah, we had home video, but you know, we had to go to blockbuster, you know, it wasn't Mm. like we were constantly just watching whatever we wanted. And there'd be like two things you want to watch on TV at the same time and having to flip between them and hope (laughs) that the commercials didn't sync up. So I was watching two TV shows or movies simultaneously. I haven't done that in like, decades that's so weird that was such a common way to consume media that's so weird yeah, well I, I grew up with a sister who's three years older than me so ah. she got to choose first ah. and then if I wanted to watch the show it's like oh it's commercial let's switch over to mine oh it's commercials here too but sometimes it like it would sync up just perfectly yeah. where your show and the commercials for the other show would kind of sync up well enough that you could both kind of half consume your own show and you'd both be satisfied with that. I remember we used to have two new like contemporary rock stations uh, Mm. in LA at the same time and they've changed and they're only one of them still exists but there was K-Rock and then there was Y107 and they were actually oh, really close to each other. Oh, like, you're such a baby. No, no, no. I'm just saying, I just remember, I'm saying this very specifically. It's all about KNAC and pirate radio. I had, we had those too. Right. But 
when I remember what I remember about uh, K Rock and Y one hundred seven is that they were actually really close to each other on the dial. Yeah, uh, K Rock was one hundred six point seven, and Y one hundred seven was one hundred seven point one. So if it was a commercial on one, or if they were like you know bullshit like talking heads, like you mm. don't really care what they're saying, you just want to hear the music, you would just go. Mm. And just hope that the commercials synced up. And I remember one time I was like flitting between both, much to my dad's consternation in his truck. <laughs> and uh, they were playing the same song at the same time. Oh no! So I was cutting back to it, and it was still like you know, "Come as You Are" by by Nirvana, like both times. It was amazing. <laughs> Does yeah. anyone give a shit about uh, this? No, well, I'm, I'm not sure if people listen to radio like that anymore. I don't well, think first, they do. Y107 actually uh, was, I think it was a Clear Channel station. Clear Channel is this gigantic media conglomerate. They own like billboards and venues and radio stations. And they're actually really, really insidious about the way they've completely broken down the way a lot of popular media, breaking down that is dissolved the mm. way a lot of popular media is consumed. And they are the ones who uh, kind of pioneered, from what I understand, the the iPod format, mm. like the iPod on shuffle, the DJ free format. Yeah, they lost uh, some DJs on Y one oh seven. I can't remember why, if they were fired or if mm. they left in a huff or something. And they're just like, okay, we're not going to have DJs. We'll just play the music mm. and. It's actually kind of refreshing at the time, but then you realize people are losing a lot of work. Well, pe- a-, a, people are losing a lot of work, and you started to realize those things aren't curated anymore. No. Things are linking up to just other popular things that you've heard before. You're turning into the radio to maybe hear uh, your favorite song once, but yeah. then hear a few you might, that might become your favorite song. Yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of new stuff. When it was injected into it, it was because it was preordained to be popular. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. because some DJ, like, oh, I heard this new band, they're awesome, you should listen to them, mm-hmm. which is why you get bands that are popular locally and not so much internationally like some like Wingo Boingo or yeah, uh, Sublime Sublime and yeah which I think had some crossover hits it was mostly an LA based band mm. yeah. yeah they're from Long Beach no I mean I know mm. what, like their popularity was LA based yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah Bo- uh, Boingo was a really curious phenomenon yeah. and we're gonna talk about LA music now uh, because <laughs> Welcome to the LA Music Podcast. Uh, Oingo Boingo is an LA-based band. Uh, you, you know them because Danny Elfman is now a famous film composer, and he started this band, uh, Oingo Boingo, with his brother. Uh, and I grew up listening to Oingo Boingo because I'm from LA. Yeah, me too. And they were on the radio all the time, so I knew Dead Man's Party, and I knew Just Another Day, and I knew Private Life. These things were just on the radio all the time. And a lot of filmmakers and, uh, who, of course, are LA-based would like hear these songs, and they'd so, end yeah. up in bigger movies. So but... like, Oingo Boingo is in the film Back to School. Like they Weird appear in Science. The movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they did the theme song to Weird yeah, Science. Exactly. Uh, and it was such a weird uh, revelation to learn that when uh, I married somebody from Louisiana— that they didn't really have Oingo Boingo in Louisiana. That's weird, right? Like, they ha- maybe they had heard Dead Man's Party on, like, a Halloween compilation somewhere. Yeah, but, that was one of their big, bigger hits, yeah. But, you know, I, I was listening to this gigantic box set of, of, like, new wave hits from the entire decade of the 80s, and surely Oingo Boingo's gonna show up on there. Yeah, it's at like least eight, somewhere. It's 18 volumes. If you're gonna have, you know, big country, mm-hmm. you're gonna have Oingo Boingo somewhere in there, and there's they don't appear at all. Oingo Boingo is actually another respectable greatest hits album. Like you can, mm. if you if you're unfamiliar mm. with Oingo Boingo and you get a Greatest Hits album, you'll hear mm. some really interesting wide variety of tunes because Oingo true. Boingo That's was true. a very Oingo Boingo. Like they had a style, but their style was that they were malleable and that they were using their songs to tell weird, off kilter stories mm. and malevolent things. But <laughs> well, Oingo Boingo kicked ass. Anyway, we got to move on. I, I I got to see Oingo Boingo in concert. You bastard! I, I never got, got to do that. I got to see their fa- farewell concert. Oh my on, god! On Halloween night in 1995. <gasps> Oh, I am so jealous. I didn't even see a concert. I, I by still, that. I still have oh the T-shirt. God. I'm never throwing that thing away. What was your first concert? Very first concert, Spinal Tap. Ooh, 
That's on. I was, I was twelve. My first that concert was Spinal on Tap. Brand. <laughs> Uh, mine was uh, George Clinton and uh, Medusa opened, and that was fucking. Amazing. Oh my gosh, that was amazing! Yeah. I still haven't beaten that. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> like maybe a David Byrne concert, which I finally got yeah. to see. That was like maybe came close, mm. but man, George Clinton fucking rocks. Anyway, I, I, I once ponied up the dough to see Prince in concert, and those were like two hundred and fifty dollars concert <gasps> yeah. tickets, and because. Uh, one security guard was looking the other way at just the right moment. We were a little bit lost at just the right moment. We ended up getting way closer to the stage than we should have. Ooh. We were 15 feet from Prince. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I'm not bragging. I'm just proud. <laughs> uh, you, that's bragging. You, you, have, you brag all you want of that. That's fucking awesome. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Piotr. Uh, hello, Piotr. <laughs> a very uh, digressive episode of We've Got it's fine. We can talk, talk yeah, about what we like. Let's hope somebody, again, that's our brand. Let's hope somebody finds it interesting. Uh, hello, Mr. Bibiani and Mr. McCule, MCQL. Nice. McCule. I like it. It's my favorite so far. Um, you're kind enough to read out and comment on my last email on Clerks versus Style, for which I am grateful. Uh, I take many of your discussions on film as recommendations. Over the past couple of years, me and my wife have watched several of the films you've praised. We might not have appreciated them as much as you do, <laughs> but most, if not all, were intriguing or memorable uh, for their technique or aesthetic, such as the Scandinavian films Blind or VR Bost. Yay! Yay! VR, VR Bost is wonderful. Please yeah. watch VR Bost. Uh, we are the best. Yeah. Uh, dur uh, during our lockdown period here in Poland, me and my wife have increased our film intake. We've watched Bicycle Thieves and appreciate it greatly. Great. We also tried to uh, have tried to watch more Hayao Miyazaki's films, and we loved Porco Rosso. Yay! <laughs> Mr. Bobiani spoke once or twice of, uh, ya what is this? Yashikai? Healing, uh, that is healing anime films. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a genre that's uh, supposed to be, oh, God, I forget the name, but yeah. Anime that is not designed to like excite or thrill, but to calm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro is one of our favorite films, but we have problems with finding recommendations for feature-length Yashikai films. Do you perhaps have some recommendations for such films? After a long day of home office and during the pandemic, uh, conflict, conflict-free mellow movie seems to be the right choice. Thank you for the constant stream of quality content. Kind regards, Piotr. Oh, well, if, if you want movies that slow you down instead of speed you up, mm. uh, good golly, there are so many to choose from. Uh, I like to start with Jacques Tati. Uh, well, Whitney's, of course, going live action here, but yes. Oh, yeah. I, I can't necessarily recommend anime films. That's going to be William's area mm. of expertise. But there are a lot of films that are that serve as uh, meditation and, and ponderance rather than excitement or even story. Uh, yeah, Jacques Tati, uh, he plays this kind of bumbling, almost silent movie uh, type character, even though he's uh, uh, in sound films. He doesn't talk a lot. And... The comedy in those films don't come from pratfalls or really strange things. They come from little tiny bits of odd human behavior that you might observe if you're just sort of sitting still and looking at them for a while. Mm. There's a scene in Monsieur Hulot's Holiday where a little boy is carrying two ice cream cones and he goes up to a door with a knob. Mm. He's, this kid is like maybe five. And rather than finding a way to put down one of the ice cream cones because they're pointed, he just very slowly and very carefully starts to turn the knob mm. with an ice cream cone in his hand. And he turns it very, very slowly, and your eyes are on that fucking ice cream cone. <laughs> you know it's going to topple off. It's, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And he turns it, it opens, it doesn't fall, and he goes inside. And you're like, your heart is in your throat. You're like, oh, thank God. The little boy's ice cream doesn't fall. The little boy is not a character in the film. Mm. We don't know where he got that ice cream or where he's going. We just saw a little kid almost spill some ice cream. And somehow that provides a kind of 
calming, gentler version of exhilaration. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the uh, and and. <laughs> Whitney kind of butchered it, and I'm probably not going to do a great job. I believe the correct pronunciation is Ayashi K. Ayashi K. I okay. could be wrong, but I think that's a little, at least a little closer. Um, a lot of the Ayashi K that I'm aware of uh, has is more in the uh, television side of things than mm-hmm. it is in uh, films. Um, and there are a lot of really sweet, kind, relaxing series that mm-hmm. there might be a little conflict, but it's basically there to calm you down. Uh, there's And a lot of these are available. There's a service called Crunchyroll, mm. um, and I believe it's free with ads, uh, but uh, Whitney actually got us uh, a subscription to Crunchyroll for mm. uh, Michelle's birthday a uh, year or two ago. Happy and, birthday. Uh, so that we have an ad free version. And um, it's actually frustrating because, you know, the, uh, Crunchyroll is actually pretty good about getting new anime uh, concurrently or at least right after it premieres in Japan. But right now everyone's on lockdown. A lot of animated shows that were like ha- mid season aren't well, and, moving and, forward. And, and it might not be available in Poland. So also might not be available in Poland, but, uh, or at least might not be available on that service. Uh, but uh, among the shows that I can recommend, one mm. I believe is called Polar Bear Cafe. <laughs> which is about a polar bear that runs a cafe. It is absolutely adorable, enchanting, and I like it a lot. There's another one called Flying Witch, which is about a witch that moves to a small town and does nice things. That's mm. it. That's basically the whole vibe, and I really, really love it a lot. There's one that I'm actually not sure if it officially... It, <sighs> no, I don't think someone's technically Slice Alive, but it does it for me. There's a really wonderful anime series called My Roommate is a Cat which is about a writer who stumbles across a cat like on the street and he takes the cat home. And the first half of every episode is about the writer's experiences trying to figure out this cat who's absolutely baffling to him. And he's kind of like a loner and having another creature in his house sort of brings him out of bed and like makes him feel like he, more human connections mm-hmm. to people uh, than he did. And he starts sort of re-examining and realizing he never felt connected to his parents, even though he could have. And it's really, really sweet and kind. The second half of every episode is the same story, but from the cat's perspective. And she's trying to figure out her owner, who makes no sense whatsoever. And, like, it's adorable and sweet. And um, it's it's really, 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 really great. Um, uh, there's more. Um, again, a lot of these are actually in the televised format. They're, like, sort of easily consumable, uh, relaxing things. There's one that's actually literally called Laid Back Camp, where it's about... <laughs> Like a bunch of fittingly named a bunch of young girls or, or young women. I forget how old they are. They're teenagers or they're in college, and the whole thing is they like to go camping. Mm. That's it. That's, that's that's the whole story. Okay. That's enough. Mm. <laughs> that's plenty, um, and it's actually just about you know the idea of like we like just going out into the into nature and just sleeping under the stars and sort of separating ourselves from the hustle and bustle of the world, and that's enough mm. for a story and. I gotta tell you, man, I really wish we had more stories like this in America. We do have some occasional films that feel this way. The one that comes to mind is Patterson with Adam Driver. Yeah. Which is extremely laid back and great. Seems right up my alley, and I'm I'm kicking myself for not having seen it yet. still haven't seen Patterson yet. Yeah, Adam Driver just plays a bus driver who is a poet. And Mm. that's it. He drives around his small town, which is also called Patterson, and he writes poetry based on the conversations he hears in his Mm. bus. That's the whole movie, and it is riveting, and Adam Driver should have been nominated for an Oscar for it. Mm. It's wonderful, but it's super mm. laid back and chill. 
Uh, I'm I'm not the expert here. I would uh, encourage you to seek out uh, the opinions of the uh, glorious and intelligent Dave White. Mm. Uh, he is a big fan of uh, slow cinema. That is, yeah. uh, and this is a, a big film movement that's a really big uh, in uh, just the Eastern world, uh, all, all of the countries uh, like Thailand and Japan and yeah. uh, and the Philippines. Uh, look up the films of Lav Diaz from the Philippines. And these are movies that tend to be very, very long. And even if they're not long, not a lot really seems to happen. And a lot of uh, slow cinema, true to its name, mm-hmm. uh, is meant to slow you down. Um, I'm thinking of Api Chapongwe Sethakul and films yeah. like uh, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives or Cemetery of Splendor. Mm. These things that are meant to sort of lull you yeah not into into sleep necessarily although i think cemetery of splendor is trying to do that it, it, because yeah, that, that's a it's film about, about being, being asleep yeah. it's about uh, soldiers who cannot wake up uh but um the idea that films need to excite or move or reach you or touch you or re- reach into your emotions in some sort of way is uh just something we in the West tend to take for granted. And I think and, it's a little... Tend to, tend to think as the default function of cinema. And it's a little limiting, honestly. When you think about all oh, cinema can do... Yeah. Um, like, And one of the things cinema can do really, really well is tell a story. You know, mm. our lives are linear and our films are very usually the same way. And they have a beginning, middle, and end. And that's very satisfying. But another thing a film can do is just stop you. Mm. All of a sudden, here you are. You're watching a film... And you're going to be on our wavelength for a while. And that can mm. wavelength can be, um, you know, really jarring and scary. And that wavelength can also be extremely laid back and chill. And that's something I'm actually learning to value more. I, I'm in therapy. Mm. And I'm learning, you know, because my, my mind just goes a mile a minute. And I get tend to be, like, um, you know, very anxious all the time or depressed all the time. And I live inside my head a lot. And I was having a conversation with my therapist, and we talked about exercises one can do to ground oneself mm-hmm. and sort of just be present in a moment rather than be constantly in one's own head. Uh, and there's a lot of, like, guided meditation that one can do or uh, other exercises. Um, and film can do that. Film, yeah. it's one of the things I love about film is that I can be going about my day and all of a sudden a film will interject because I happen to watch it or I need to watch it for work. I, a film interjects itself into my life and forces me to view things its way mm-hmm. for a little while. And that can completely change your life if it comes along at the right time. Yeah, so, yeah. again, there's a lot of laid back cinema out there. There's a lot of laid back anime. Again, it's mostly called Slice of Life here in America. Um, and yeah, a lot of it is TV based, and you can catch a lot of it on various anime streaming services. I'm not sure what's currently available in Poland, um, but hopefully, some of the titles I recommended are stuff that you can look up. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, do you have yeah. time for another yeah, one? Yeah, maybe or, two more. Yeah. Uh, here is a letter from B. Peterson. We hear from B. Peterson frequently. Hi, uh, B. Peterson. It says, Dear Bibs and, Pish- Dear Bibs and Shasta, <laughs> uh, I've heard. Uh, to explain once again, uh, if, if I had been born a girl, my mother would have named me after Mount Shasta. My first yep. name would have been Shasta. Context! Um, Dear Bibs and Shasta, I, I've heard William tell on multiple occasions his anecdote about when he spoke with a music supervisor, and he said regarding song choices in a film that the lyrics should fit the scene or the tone, uh, the tune should fit the scene, but not both, because then it's too obvious. Uh, the, to clarify, that wasn't a music supervisor. I was reading an interview with David Simon, mm. uh, the producer of TV shows like Treme, which is very much about the New Orleans music scene and also the wire which has some really brilliant music choices okay. so there was it was a producer not a music supervisor but yes i've told yeah. that story many times uh, 
It's good advice. Now that we've all heard the discussions about uh, what films have the best soundtrack records and everybody knows familiar favorites, Superfly, Dazed and Confused, My Little Pony, Equestria Girls, Rainbow Rocks, etc. Thank you. Uh, here's my question. Uh, what is your favorite single needle drop from any film? Uh, my choice is when Nina Simone's Sinner Man begins playing at the end of one of my favorite films, which I won't disclose here because William hasn't seen it yet. Uh, what results may just be the coolest end credit sequence ever captured on video. Thank you. See you in the next one. B. Peterson. Is it the Thomas mm. Crown Affair? Because I love that one. That's a cool one. Mm. Um, See, i got to rack my brain. Uh, certain filmmakers are known for having good soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Oh, my boss is one of them. Uh, that's, that is Quentin Tarantino. The Coen brothers are another one. Uh, it's They don't use them a lot, but when they do, it's usually pretty Yeah, uh, I mean, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is still kind of like mm-hmm. one of the most giganticest soundtracks of all time. Uh, and... I'm very fond of the music selections of John Waters. Uh, he mm, tends to tends to find really oblique rockabilly tunes and weird novelty things that fit his movies in unexpected ways. Uh, the theme music for his movie Pecker, which is one of his less celebrated movies, is a song called Happy Go Lucky Me. And it's really kind of upbeat, uh, cheery, almost maniacally happy song that somehow is a really wonderful, ironic uh, music mm. selection and that it's so happy that it kind of offsets some of the weirdness and the filth, but it does set the tone that these are cheerful, cheerful, happy people. Yeah. Uh, that one comes to mind. And I, I, whenever I made mixtapes, I put happy go lucky me somewhere on that one. That's a good one. Uh, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Layla in uh, Goodfellas mm. is, uh, epic, mm. like absolutely epic. It's Scorsese film. Scorsese is one of the filmmakers, who was at the forefront of using pre-existing pop music in movies. Yeah. Um, he took the idea a lot from Kenneth Anger. And uh, if you really want to see the first people who did it in an edgy yeah, watch, way... Watch Scorpio Rising. Scorpio yeah. Rising is an absolutely trailblazing film in terms of how it portrayed uh, the use of music, ironically. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty fucked up film. Um, but it is, it is good. Mm. It's pretty fucked up, though. Um, I'm trying to think, actually. This is one of those ones that's like yeah. it's such a big question that for a like second this, this you're, is, you're, uh, yeah. you're, you've got this plethora of choice and you're this is something that an editor might assign you and you take a like a day or two just to come up with like your short list yeah so it's hard yeah to come up with something just right on the spur of the moment some are a little obvious mm. um i'm i'm all in favor for a good ironic needle drop where uh it the point is that it actually stands like directly counter to the mood of the scene yeah Oh, I got a good one. Mm. Uh, you ever see Body Double? I have, but I don't remember. Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, <laughs> There's this amazing... Okay, so Brian De Palma is a filmmaker who I don't think we talk about very often, but um, he's a very stylish filmmaker. He's heavily inspired by Alfred Hitchcock in particular, mm. and he tended to make a bunch of thrillers. He also made a few mainstream Hollywood blockbusters like The Untouchables and Mission Impossible. Uh, he's best known for making sort of these um, daring, violent, sensual, erotic thrillers along the lines of uh, Dress to Kill or uh, one of my personal favorites, Body Double, which mm. is a <laughs> basically if you put Vertigo and Rear Window and 80s porn in a blender, you would get Body Double. Uh, it's about a, it's about an out of work actor who uh, uh, takes a house sitting job and he finds out that uh, his house is across the street or down the hill or whatever from uh, a house where a woman does a sexy dance every night Mm. and he becomes completely obsessed with and falls in love with this woman from afar. And then he sees her get murdered. And then just when he thinks like, Oh my God, I did nothing. I didn't help. I didn't, you know, I'm a horrible human being. Um, And he is. 
Uh, but uh, then he's watching pornography and he sees a porn star played by Melanie Griffith do the same dance. And so his attempt to investigate the mystery involves him going into porn in mm. order to meet her. And the way Brian De Palma thinks that the porno industry works in the 80s is amazing because it's, <laughs> he does a touch of evil one shot crane move mm. of a mid 80s porno movie. To Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax, and it is an incredible, mm. an incredible sequence. Like a holy shit, amazing sequence. But you're like, there's no movie of the era that would ever do that. Or for that matter, any other era. It's way too ambitious for it. Mm. And it's just this weird, isolated sequence. Okay, we got some fireworks going off. It's, it's happening these days. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see them out the window from where we're recording. Yeah. Um, you probably heard that. But yeah, that's a really weird mm. mic drop and or needle, needle drop. drop. It's yeah. such a, ooh, that's a, that's a fun, weird one. I'm trying to think of, yeah, some good, weird ones. Um, you haven't seen La Dolce Vita, have you? Actually, I haven't, no. Okay, uh, the, the song that plays incessantly throughout that is an old lounge stand. Mm. It's now a lounge standard called Patricia, and mm. you know it. Da-da, 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 da-da. Yeah. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah. Da, da, uh, uh, Homer Simpson is a big fan of it. Uh, mm. That one plays incessantly throughout La Dolce Vita. Mm. It's like you're listening to Patricia for like two and a half straight hours. <laughs> um, and and that, that'll really drill itself into your head. Um, Hip to be square from American Psycho. These are like some really obvious ones. I just jumped mm. in to see what condition my condition is in from the Big Lebowski. Mm. Um, oh, uh, Pretty in Pink. Uh, when Ducky lip syncs to try a little tenderness. I haven't seen Pretty in Pink. Oh, you've never so, seen yeah. that one's actually uh, that one's actually pretty mm. good. Um, oh, uh, oh, here's a fun one. Mm. Um, in the not particularly good but very entertaining uh, post-apocalyptic movie Doomsday, uh, starring I haven't seen Doomsday either. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, Rona Mitra plays like a, a mercenary in the near future and like. Britain has been gripped uh, uh, by a virus and like Scotland has been walled off so that all the Brits can be like safe mm. and the Scots will have all this horrible virus. And she has to like travel into the wastelands of Scotland. Mm. And uh, there she meets, in addition to like a whole sequence where like, I think it's Alec McDowell. Uh, uh, it's Alex Mc Wait. Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. Where Malcolm McDowell, I was thinking <laughs> of Alex from oh. Clockwork Orange, uh, where Malcolm McDowell is like <laughs> pretending to be king at like an actual castle and he's making people joust. Right. But there's this amazing bit where she ends up kidnapped by a gang of like road warrior cannibals who are really big fans of fine young cannibals. And they do a whole like cannibalism sequence to Good Thing, which if you don't <laughs> know that song is an amazingly mm. good pop song. That sequence mm. is awesome it's such a great fun weird <laughs> delightful needle drop i'm a huge mm. huge fan of it um uh, modern love and uh and francis ha oh that's a good yeah. one that's actually uh, a reference to another mm. movie that did that it's a um oh uh who did holy motors again uh, Leo's Carax. Leo's Carax mm. had an earlier film called Bad Blood, which has a very similar, mm. uh, uh, like, sort of running sequence uh, to while someone's listening to Modern Love. It's like the mm. exact same shot. Yeah. Uh, but it works well in both instances. Mm. So that's a good one, too. Uh, here, here's a weird one that uh, that really stuck with me. Uh, back in the late 80s, there was a, an issue of the best, uh, the best songs of Harry Belafonte, mm. which meant uh, this record kind of for about six months 
seemed like suburban standard standard issue. Like everybody in the suburbs had that copy of Harry Belafonte's Greatest Hits. It's a, so it's it, another good Greatest Hits album. Actually. It made perfect sense at the time that the Maitlands in Beetlejuice would be listening to Harry Belafonte. Yeah, and when it came time for them to possess the uh, the Dietzes who had moved into their house after they died, that they would sing the Banana Boat song. Mm. It was. In retrospect, that's really fucking surreal. It, it kind of is. Like it, it's always played a little weird, but uh, yeah, you're right. It was. Um, oh, here's one where the movie itself is so bleak; it's actually extremely hard to watch. But the f- closing, like the choice of the final needle drop, mm. is such a catharsis that you're grateful for it. And it's at the end mm. of Dogville when they play oh, God. David Bowie's Young, Young Americans. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, Which, I was grateful for that song because it recontextualized the film a uh, little bit and it's it's such a like oh, it's okay, you can go home and not hate everything in the world. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually fun to be had. Uh, which which he did with the sequel as well, Manderley. He, he plays oh, he uh, Young Americans is over the credits of that one, well, too. Well, there you go. And there was, it was supposed to be part of a trilogy, and uh, everybody hated working with Marcia Ventura so much you couldn't get the cast back together. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Because uh, Nicole Kidman refused to come back, so he recast the same role with uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Mm, yeah. And the idea was the third one, which was going to be called Washington, that is Washington without an H, uh, they were going to like in that obscure object of desire they were going to uh, switch roles throughout and that just mm. never manifested he never got to make his his yeah, grand was... criticism of american government yeah that was never going to be a thing mm. but um but yeah no the art of a good needle mm. drop like picking the perfect song mm. is really really mm. hard to do and one of the things you can tell why it's hard to do is um how many comedies try to do it in the first scene yeah this seems to have died out and i'm grateful for it but there was this period in like the 2010s ish where it seemed like every other broad comedy opened with one or more funny and I use air quotes characters singing in their car an old pop song why like, is like it from from the 80s or the, were, or the 90s and they were um, singing it really earnestly but it was like somehow embarrassing like it's and, funny that like the guys in the internship it was Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson in that one yeah, or Luke yeah, Wilson yeah. one of the one of the Wilson <laughs> but uh, it, was, it's, it's, it was Owen Wilson okay yeah it's I think they opened that movie by like singing ironic by Alanis Morissette and I'm like the movie like lingers on it as if it's supposed to do one of three things should have played linger well that would have <laughs> Yeah, uh, but it should do one of three things. It should introduce their characters. It doesn't. This isn't something they do all the time. Uh, it should say something about their characters. It has nothing to do with anything. Or it should be funny. There is no joke. Just they're just they're in a car singing, singing a song. song and they like, Melissa McCarthy's done this a few times. And like, I, I don't get why that's a thing. I don't understand mm. what you're getting at. If a movie's been on for a while, a surprise needle drop can be really, really good. And I'll actually give you an example of this. Uh, the comedy Tommy Boy. There's a really funny mm-hmm. sequence in the middle of Tommy Boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, they're, where they're high on nitrous oxide? No, 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 no. You're actually thinking of Black Sheep. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. excuse but me. In the middle of Tommy Boy, the, the whole thing movie. is David Spade and Chris Farley are on a road trip trying to sell car parts. But mm. they hate each other. And there's a sequence in the middle where they're fighting over what music to listen to on the radio and they can't decide on anything. Like, oh, your music sucks. Or, oh, I'm not listening to that. It's too loud. And then they put on, like, a really, like, sort of Kiss FM kind of romance romance jam. And it's not cool music. And they both, like, listen to it like, well, this sucks. And they're like, yeah, 
I'll listen to it if you will. Yeah, I dare you. And then smash cut oh, to they're, they're both singing at the same time. They're singing at us too. Yeah. Uh, Don't <laughs> you remember you told me you love my baby? Baby. And it works because we know their characters right now. It's kind of funny that this is the one thing they can agree on mm. is this kind of innocuous but pretty good pop song. And it's funny that they're actually able to bond and be emotional for the first time together <laughs> over, over something kind of banal and silly. Mm. And then it breaks into like a weird joke where the hood of their car smashes up and they almost die. It's a really well-crafted comedy bit. <laughs> and it's all based on an unexpected needle drop. And then an unexpected needle drop of the same song because there's a smash cut to halfway through it. Mm. It's really good. It's, it's good filmmaking. It's not genius, it's good, but like good, you can... Good cinematic storytelling. If you're yeah. trying to teach how to make comedy, how to tell comedy in a movie, you mm. could do a lot worse than that sequence. There's good timing in it. There's good setups and payoffs. It works. Mm. Anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how many times I've heard Delamitri's role to me in a film or in a preview <laughs> or something. Oh, you know, God, look so... around the world, pretty, pretty baby is everything. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was in like every third preview for a second. It's been a um, bit. Remember, there was, was a time when Salisbury Hill was in every trailer that was trying to make yeah, you feel like yeah. Jerry Maguire. And so, I it, it that ended for me when uh, it it's like a student editing project was to take footage from a film and sell it as if it's from a different genre. Oh yeah, and they changed The Shining into Shining. Yeah, Shining, and, which is basically as good as it gets. The whole thing yeah. is like, what if we edit it to Sh- make it look like Jack Nicholson is this curmudgeonly Jack writer? Jack just and- can't finish his book, but now he's fostering a little boy. Yeah. And then they start like, <laughs> rising up on Salisbury Hill. It's like, all this big emotional thing. It's actually a really good, really good exercise, and that bet's really, really funny. Um, uh, oh, and here's something I'm glad is we're kind of done with, because throughout the entire first half of the 2010s, we were inundated with, and this wasn't just in previews, this was in movies too, the bummer version of a known pop song. Oh, right, right, Remember right. that phenomenon? Yeah, that was in a lot yeah. of trailers, where they would take like some kind of mm. generally upbeat pop song, but they'd slow it way down and make you it kind might, of dubstep You might as well face it, you're addicted to love. <gasps> Wasn't yeah, that from yeah. Fifty Shades or one of the sequels? And they, is that no, the way th- they did that one? I, th- I forgot which film that was, but there was a bummer version of Addicted yeah. to Love. Yeah, there was a bummer version of I I Want to Be Sedated. Yeah, and uh, what was the one they used in the last Transformers movie before Bumblebee? Like they tried to make the last oh, night seem um, badass. Oh, it was. Uh, uh, oh, everybody wants to rule the world. No, that that was used, but that wasn't the one for no. uh, for. I think it was uh, Listen to the Silence. Oh. Which is already kind of a bummer song. Yeah, it yeah. is actually. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that one's. Um, I mean, that's kind of fun, like once or twice, but it became such a thing; it became a total cliche. Yeah, but uh, I was so curious about this big phenomenon because it was so insufferable and it was everywhere. And nobody seemed to be addressing it. And I wrote an article. It's like, here's all these bummer songs. Which was, yeah, I noticed. So what? What do you mean? So what? This is weird and bad. Well, and, I mean, bad is subjective, but it's certainly weird and, and I, worth and noting. You were in the room when we discovered this, yes. but we found out that the reason this is happening was because there is one band that was doing it. Yeah. This wasn't like a bunch of bummer remixes that just happened to be going around among the modern music scene and a lot of different bands were doing this and we were just sort of plucking them out. It turns out a band, fittingly enough, called Hidden Citizens (laughs) 
was doing a lot of these bummer remixes specifically for use in trailers, and they yeah. got made their career licensing their music, doing these big electronic bombastic uh, remixes. Yeah, I say they. I suspect it's just one guy. And, and <laughs> I don't may, know, maybe man. maybe ask like, some yeah. of his friends to provide some vocals. If you go to hiddencitizens dot com, and they'll mm-hmm. give you like their credits, like. Um, they did like a version of Moonlight Sonata for Ad Astra. They did uh, Here We Stand for Game of Thrones. Mm. They did Fur Elise for King of the Monsters, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Sorry. Uh, let's see. They did. Uh, let's see. They did Alita Battle Angel. Uh, they did Mission Impossible no. Fallout, Atomic Blonde, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, Zombie Chronicles. Like, it's a good gig if you can get it. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, but yeah, they have like a lot of different, uh, uh, yeah. Now, as, as it's far crazy. and as far as I know, this is the first time they, in they film call it history. epic trailer version. They have one for yeah. like "Don't Speak" and "Painted Black" and "Nowhere to Run" and mm. "Crazy on You." And so yeah, a lot of those things are by this this group, Hidden Hidden Citizens, and Hidden Citizens, as far as I know, is the first uh, pop band that exists solely for marketing purposes. <laughs> But has like a band name. They're not like just studio musicians who are doing a lot of ad jingles. Yeah, they actually like you, they're, like they're 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 specially licensing themselves to be to sell any products. They're essentially the Ernest P. Worrell of the music world. I can actually read you the about page on hiddencitizens.com. A shadowed authority specializing in impactful <laughs> music. Hidden I'm not mocking them. They've they've got they've nailed this. Yeah. Hidden Citizens is an underground group of creators that crafts top-tier content from outside the public eye. Their music will take you on a journey with reflective low points and extreme high points. They paint an unforgettable picture. If the end of everything has a soundtrack, Hidden Citizens will bring it to life. <laughs> and then they list a lot of, of their credits, uh, a lot yeah. of their credits. Um, yeah, they there was a niche and they filled it. And, and here's the bizarre thing: I, I took Hidden Citizens to all of the venues, all, all of the outlets that would have an article about Hidden Citizens. Any anybody that I'd ever written for, I pitched the idea. I need to write an essay about hidden, hidden citizens. I just need to inform the world that I've cracked this. <laughs> I've, I've solved it. Not very the, well hidden, but no one thought to look. No one thought to look, but it's like, I've solved this puzzle. We found it. Can I write an article? Why do all trailer, why does all trailer music sound the same? Because it's all the same band. And no one was interested. It's like, I don't understand so it what? It's like, like, I, this is the uh, weird little facet of film marketing that was so insidious that nobody even thought to think about it. I know. Bless them. I love them. I honestly, yeah. I unabashedly love them. Like, I don't necessarily like everything that they've done. Mm. And it's, you know, like anything that becomes ubiquitous, you, 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 you can get a little old, let's be mm. fair. Like, when every trailer was doing it after a while, you're just like, oh, this again. Yeah. But they did it. I have absolute respect for that. They mm. figured out that people wanted this stuff and mm. they made that. Good for them. 20, 20, 24 hours ago. Wasn't that, didn't they use that for uh, Cure for Wellness? Yeah, that? it was in the Cure for Wellness there preview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Mm. Why not? Anyway, but that's another example right there where they pick something where the lyrics make sense, mm. but the actual music wouldn't, and then they make the music make sense. Yeah. Which works better in a trailer when you only have a few moments Seconds, yeah. Yeah, to sell a concept. Um, so it's very, very functional. Hmm. Anyway, uh, anyway, that is We've Got Mail for the Week. Thank you, everybody, who wrote in. Uh, again, you can write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We will answer your emails, as many as we can. We can't get to all of them because, um, hmm. as you may have noticed, we try to give everyone their time. Hmm. Um, 
But yeah, we do this every week. We've got mail, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network, where we have a ton of exclusive content. You can also uh, leave uh, comments on all of our various shows there if you want to interact that way and maybe interact with some of the other people who leave comments. We have a Facebook page as well. We're very grateful to the people who contribute to that. Um, and um, yeah, we have a ton of other podcasts here and on the Critically Acclaimed Network. I just did a really fun episode mm. of Schmobates, uh, <laughs> where uh, it's a it's a YouTube series mm. where uh, we debate various things about the movie trivia Schmodown, the online trivia show of which Whitney and I are both mm. uh, uh, stars or co-stars, I suppose. We've, one of the, we've been on it. One of the many stars in the galaxy of Schmodown stars, and uh, they're going to start picking up uh, production. There, there was a big halt. Uh, for COVID and then mm. they finally figured out a way to do it mostly online uh, so that's going to pick up soon and hopefully Whitney and I will both be uh, playing again real soon for your entertainment and pleasure uh, so thank you everybody again for writing in thank you everybody for listening we'll be back soon with some more cool stuff and um, sincerely yours Bibs and Whitney <laughs>